Welcome to Dementia Dialogue. Stories bring us together and help us to understand one another. Our podcast gives people with lived experience of dementia a way to share their stories with each other and the broader community in order to increase understanding and connection and decrease stigma. Today, we continue our third and final episode in our series, Dying and Dementia. I sat down with Dr. Kathy Cortez-Miller to discuss her book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You, The Essential Guide to End-of-Life Conversations. Dr. Kathy is an educator, researcher, author, and speaker who advocates for improved care at the end of our lives. Welcome, Dr. Kathy, to Dementia Dialogue. I really appreciate the invitation to be here, Don. So my background is in social work. I worked for well over a decade as a social worker on a hospice unit here in Thunder Bay before going into academia. Um, And I have the privilege of teaching the future healthcare providers of tomorrow around palliative and end-of-life care. And I'm the director of the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health as part of Lakehead University here in Thunder Bay. And my research interests really focus on end of life. And my community engagement work focuses on getting the conversations around what people want at the end of life and how to get those conversations started. Thanks, Kathy. So why did you decide to become a death educator? And my second part is, why did you write the book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You? Yeah, thank you. So I call myself a death educator because that's the focus of my work. I uh, teach research presently uh, for grad students. And all the examples that I give around my research are around dying, death, loss, and grief. And so it's fascinating to hear students say, I didn't think we'd learn so much about death in a research class. And I think that that's really important. And I got interested in learning more about dying, death, loss, and grief because I didn't know much, if anything, when I experienced the first significant death to me. Yes, I'd had grandparents who I loved and adored who had died, but that made sense to me. It wasn't until a really good friend of mine died when I was in high school that I began to sort of sit up and say, hey, we don't talk about this. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to feel. I know nothing. And while that wasn't my 17-year-old thoughts at the time, that's now how I interpret it because I started to pay attention. I started to look around and think, where is education knowledge being shared around there, this kind of discussion? And I couldn't find it. I remember when I was pregnant, standing in a bookstore, and I could see a bazillion books about what to expect when you're expecting, how to manage and navigate pregnancy. But even today, when I look in the same section on life or psychology, there's a small segment that talks about end of life. There's a couple of really good books out there in addition to mine, which I'll hopefully add to your resource um, list. So we're getting more of that happening. And how I wrote the book was because at the center, we were doing all sorts of palliative and end of life education for our healthcare providers. And we would hear from people in the community, hey, that's great that you're educating healthcare providers because goodness knows they need it. But what about me? I'm a caregiver in your community, and I am the person who is doing 95% of the work at this point, and I don't know what to do, so why don't I get some of that education too? Nobody was doing that, and our center and a couple of other great community groups, including Hospice Northwest, took the initiative and did some talks, and at the end of any talk I would give, somebody would say, why don't you write this into a book? So I did. 
Can we talk just for a moment about the title of your book? Talking about death won't kill you. The book is so easy to read, easy to understand, and it's about a topic that we often shy away from or we're uncomfortable talking about with our family or our friends. And yet death is inevitable. And often people will say, well, why did you come up with that as your title? And I'm like, to me, that's what this is. It, we need to be really clear that talking about death, while it is difficult, and I want to acknowledge that, that it is for some people a challenging conversation or a tender conversation, it's an important one. And it ultimately will not kill you to have the conversation. So true, Kathy. Through the book, you use the term death literacy. What does that mean? Yeah, it was a term that I learned about from Dr. Carrie Noonan in an Australian research group. And when we talk about literacy all the time in our communities. And my children were in high school at the time when I was writing the book. And, you know, they would talk about math literacy. They would talk about literacy in terms of reading. And death literacy is exactly what those other things are. It's about developing your knowledge and skills and your ability to communicate around a particular topic. So when we think about death literacy, it's about thinking about what is it that's important to us at our ends of life, understanding the system and the context in which living until you die occurs. So knowing how to navigate the healthcare system, how to talk to your healthcare providers, uh, thinking about after death care, and also knowing what supports are there in your communities as well. It also involves a skill set. It involves thinking about if we're going to care for people that are close to us in our homes, as I know many of your listeners do, caregivers of people living with dementia, thinking about what is it that I need to know? Uh, do I need to have specific equipment? Um, what do I do at three o'clock in the morning if we have a crisis? Who do I call? How also do I take care of myself? And what is grief? How do I think about what I'm experiencing in the caregiving for somebody that I love as well? So true. And I think we often, for people living with dementia and, and care partners, is they experience grief throughout after, you know, diagnosis and throughout that caregiving. Kathy, what do you suggest that people, where did they start with death literacy? Where do we start learning besides reading your book? <laughs> Thank you. And I would suggest most of us know more than we think we do. Because as we go throughout life, we're going to experience loss. And when we experience loss, and it can be lost due to death, but it can be lost just solely to the transitions that we encounter in life as well. So we engage in thinking about what does, how do we react? How do we feel? How do others react to us when we go through life and we encounter loss? Death is like that too, because it's for many of us, our most significant loss that we experience. Um, so we can learn in many ways, particularly these days, if you're scrolling through social media or you flick on CBC, you are going to hear about dying, death, loss, and grief. So we hear it in our media. We also look around and we see it happening in our communities. We can learn from other people's death as well. When I think back to my clinical work on a hospice unit, one of the things that I think I brought in addition to social work skills was the fact that I had the privilege of companioning or witnessing so many deaths that I was continually taking notes and learning from those. What worked well? What were some of the challenges? How could we provide care differently? But we do that in our own interactions. We see how other people die and we think about what 
it means to us, but also how we can learn from it. I agree. Reading books is a great one. I would steer away from Hollywood uh, medical shows if we're talking about learning about natural death, because those tend to be a little bit fantastic and not at all aligned with what we understand about dying and death, but generally good entertaining watching, just not a great teacher around death. Why are we a death defiant or death denying, which you referenced in your book, society? Yeah, and, and I think that's a, a, an interesting perspective now, considering um, when we're bombarded, I would say even more so since the pandemic around dying, death, loss, and grief. So are we actually denying it anymore? Or is it becoming part of the seams in our society that we're not paying attention about what it actually means to us or what it's going to mean when it hits close to home? So I think in part why... In the book, for sure, I said we live in a death-denying and death-defying society is because we've turned over dying death into our healthcare system. And while I really appreciate all the things that our healthcare system can offer, and I am a person who's had cancer, so let me tell you, I really appreciate our healthcare system. I'm not sure our dying and death belong in that context. I think our healthcare system does many things well, but death is not a medical event. It's actually a social process. And so we need to think about it differently. We need to think about how do we build capacity in our communities so that we can help one another so that people can die in the manner in which they live. And I think that also is helpful to our healthcare providers too, because they want to be human beings uh, when they're caring for something at the end of life. It's not so much that it's a failure or that the system didn't serve them well. They are in addition to a strong capacity built community. In your book, you talk about importance of death literacy, which you describe as involving the skills and knowledge to plan for and support ourselves and others at the end of life. What are the benefits of being death literate and having end of life conversations? Yeah, so often I would hear that when people have the conversation, it becomes a gift. It's it's going to assist them in navigating end of life with the person, either themselves or with the people who care for you. So for example, at the end of life, sometimes people are asked, you know, what needs to happen now? Um, maybe it's what the person hopes for in terms of location of death, what they're willing to sacrifice in order to have a high level of pain management. It means who would they like to even be at their bedside at the time of their throughout their dying process. And when we know those things, that really helps the people concentrate on doing what it is what the person wants um, and not having to question what's going to happen or what they might want. An example of this is my um, husband's uh, Nana, and she was an avid, avid bridge player. And uh, when we had some conversations about what she wanted to do, we didn't talk about necessarily what kind of medical procedures she wanted or what kind of medication she thought she might need. It was more of what drives your life at this point. And she was really clear. Bridge was that thing, playing bridge. And she like won massive tournaments and did really well as a bridge player. But as things progressed and she had a number of strokes near the end of her life, she wasn't able to play bridge to the same capacity, but she was still able to play bridge. And when she finally had her most serious stroke, the healthcare team said, so what do you think 
your person, Nana, would want at the end of life. And I remember my father-in-law asking the physician, well, will she still be able to play bridge? And the surgeon looked a little bit funny. And he said, no, she won't play bridge again. And that helped to make the decisions um, moving forward. So that was something that was integral to Nana's quality of life. And that was something that helped to guide those decisions. So if we hadn't had those conversations, we wouldn't have known what kind of direction to get. Absolutely. And we're so individualized in what, what is important to us. So bringing that, that to light. Incredible. So many people affected by dementia, whether they're living with or caring for someone living with dementia, are dealing with the impact of the changes, losses, increased care needs and more, and it can often feel overwhelming. What advice do you offer when discussing end of life wishes? It's interesting. People talk about advanced care planning or these conversations as a soul conversation. And what I would make sure people understand is that it's a series of conversations. They don't have to be, you know, sit down and let's talk about what you want at the end of life kind of conversation. It can be things that happen when you're on a walk. It can be a conversation that gets started because something you see on TV or you hear about a friend being diagnosed with a life-limiting illness. And so what do you learn? And so you can use different pockets of those conversations to help support each other as you're navigating what the dementia process might look like and how the changing needs occur. What practical tips do you recommend when considering end-of-life planning? Flexibility, (laughs) I would say. And, And to recognize that one of the good things about developing death literacy, about having conversations and thinking about end of life, is it allows you to discover some of the different options and things that are available. I just saw a post on social media from a a group end well in the US. And they were talking about a little kid who had been diagnosed uh, with a serious illness who didn't even know that you could die at home. And it was because he got information from something else. And so I think if we have the conversations, um, you'll put together bits and pieces and think about what matters to you. Um, I think uh, figuring out, you know, a home death is very different than dying in a hospice or dying in long-term care or dying in acute care. And so while we can have preferences, we can do some planning to try and make those things happen. But we need to recognize because the conversations are ongoing and changing that we may need to adapt some of the things that we also wished for at the end of life. And we also generally, most of us only die once. And so we don't know 100% what we are going to want or what we think is going to be important. Our values and our belief systems help us to guide that. But until we're in a situation, we don't know. And that's why they're conversations and they continue on as we move throughout our life. Any final messages that you want to leave with our listeners? Um, just, I would say not to be frightened of the conversation. And I suspect most of your listeners aren't frightened of the conversation. But sometimes our healthcare providers are. Can we be honest there? It's a difficult conversation for healthcare providers to have around end of life. It's difficult because of time. It's difficult because nobody wants to remove hope. Um, And sometimes we have to initiate those conversations ourselves. So if I had one little piece, it would be to encourage 
those of us who are consumers, patients within the healthcare system, whether we have dementia or not, but to make sure we let our healthcare providers know that we are open to the conversation about what's going to be important to us at the end of life and we're ready to have them. Thank you, Dr. Kathy, for meeting with me today to discuss Talking About Death Won't Kill You. For anyone who is interested in purchasing Dr. Kathy's book, you can find it online through Amazon and Chapters. Thank you, Don, for the opportunity. I appreciated our conversation. This Dementia Dialogue episode is released under a new partnership of the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario and the Centre for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University. The Alzheimer's Society is excited to take on a leadership role in producing and marketing our podcasts to strengthen the voice of people with lived experience of dementia. Dementia Dialogue continues to receive financial support through the Dementia Community Investment of the Public Health Agency of Canada. Please continue to follow us on Facebook. Our web address remains dementiadialogue.ca. You may also reach us through email at dementiadialogue at alzon.ca.